Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Episode 41 of The Bowery Boys. The New York Post. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And this week, we are talking about journalism, New York journalism, and one of the rocks institutions of the city, mm, the New York the Post. The old grade lady. Ah. No, not the gray lady. Um, the maybe kind of crazy lady. <laughs> <laughs> the crazy lady of New the, York journalism. But, I mean, as you know, like you just said, it's an institution. Uh, it's the 13th oldest newspaper in the United States. And the New York Post is the oldest continuously published newspaper in the United States. And it's uh, one of the only newspapers that I know of that actually starts with the founding father and, you know, still runs today and is one of the most eye-catching pieces of print that you can get for a quarter in this city, definitely. <laughs> one of the only remaining pieces of print you can have for a quarter. The only paper I know that puts page six on page ten. It's a, it's a paper we all love and we all love to hate. We're going to look at it specifically through the owners of the paper. We'll be mentioning mentioning an editor and writer here or there, but mostly it's the, the owners who kind of set the direction. And this paper does go in some wild directions, zigzags back and forth like with political affiliations and partisanship. So today we'll be going back behind the headlines, looking at the real story behind the New York Post. Stay tuned. All right, Tom, I just happened to be holding a New York Post, mm, a late city you final. You look at that. And the, the, with the particular headroom, this is not that sensational in terms of crazy words or outrageous phrases, but it's for the history of Yankee Stadium. I think they listened to my podcast a couple weeks ago. They must have, yes. But it's a wraparound cover. It's very special. Collector's edition. You know, for people who don't live in New York, they may not, you know, they don't regularly come across the Post because I don't think it gets distributed across the nation. Am well, I- it, I, I, it does show up in some big cities. Okay. You can buy it in LA and you can can buy it even in eastern Pennsylvania. Why don't you give us a little give us a little outline of what the New York Post is? Are you asking me to situate the listener? Situate the, yes, please well, situate. Can I hold the post? Yes, there well. you go. 
here we go. I'm holding a New York Post. It has 84 pages. It is a daily newspaper, originally called the New York Evening Post. Today, as you can see, Greg, this paper is in a tabloid format. Yes. As opposed to a, a broadsheet. This this format is called the tabloid side, as opposed to the style, the sensational style ta- of journalism ta- ta- that we yeah. call tabloid. Yeah, this is... When we say tabloid, we're talking about the style. And I guess in the case of well, the New York this, Post, you're yeah. talking about both. This is tabloid in every sense of the word. Right. The Post today is owned by Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation. And it's part of his whole global empire of newspapers and television Fox channels. Fox and everything. Fox and all of the papers in the UK and in Australia. The paper costs 25 cents on weekdays, 50 cents on Saturday, and... Only a dollar on on Sunday when it's much larger. The the circulation is impressive. Seven hundred twenty five thousand people approximately get it on the weekdays, with four hundred thirty nine thousand on the weekends, making it one of the very most read newspapers in New York. And you can compare that to the Daily News, which has a circulation roughly the same. I mean, the last numbers I saw were seven hundred eighteen thousand. The Times has a circulation of one million one hundred twenty thousand. A little bit more. Okay. Yeah, significantly higher, but that's also the national circulation. And as you pointed out, the Post isn't readily available in other parts of the country. Well, and also when you're like on on a subway or a bus, it's just easier to read the Post in terms of the size. And it covers all kinds of news. I mean, international, national, local. But it also, I think it's best known for its coverage of celebrity news, gossip, uh, it's got a great media section, business news, and a very, you know, well-loved and respected sports section. Right. And where would, you know, the New York gossip scene be without its page six, which mm-hmm. covers all kinds of, you know, we've heard blind items. Yeah, uh, seen the, here, seen there, right. Uh, the Post today is also famous for its eye-catching photos and its kind of over-the-top puns in the headlines, which are just really great. I mean, they really keep the New York punsters... <laughs> In business, you know. Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's the only paper where the actual headline can get people talking about the headline and not the news style behind it, you know? Because <laughs> sometimes they take a little deciphering, too. And the Post editorial page is decidedly conservative in its slant. What's funny about the Post is considering what it is now how it really got its start. I mean, it started with the Founding Fathers. As, as a matter of fact, you can even say the birth of the New York Post happened because of Thomas Jefferson being elected president in 1800. It's actually kind of the, it's the spark. Okay, you're taking us the, back. Yes, we're, we're, we're all, all the way back. Now, I don't know if you remember this election in 1800, but it was a very contentious election. Thomas Jefferson's party, the Democratic Republicans, they swept the Federalists out of office. One of the people who were swept away, basically, in terms of their power was Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton, who in um, his biography that Ron Churchill wrote a few years ago, calls him the patron saint of the New York Evening. Post, and I'll tell you why. So when he left Washington's cabinet, because he was on his George Washington's cabinet, he still had influence on John Adams' cabinet. Once Jefferson was president, he really had no power. He was basically a has been. So he watched as a lot of the laws and things that he had done were overridden by Jefferson. So basically, because Hamilton needed an outlet, and he thought the Federalist Party still needed some way to get its opinions out there, so that Jefferson wouldn't remain unchecked. So he started the Evening Post as kind of his own personal sounding board, like an organ, if you Mm. will, an organ to criticize the Jeffersonian government. So uh, the paper was started, $10,000 
of investments uh, from other disgruntled Federalists, including about $1,000 of his own funds. The plans to make this paper were actually hatched at the farm estate of a man named Archibald Gracie. Uh, Sounds Gracie. familiar. Yes, his house would later become Gracie Mansion, which would be the home for most every mayor of New York, except for our current one. So Hamilton then hired his first editor, whose name was William Coleman, who was basically plucked from Hamilton's own entourage. He was a lawyer that was had been closely aligned with him. Coleman's first editorial, get this, he says he wants to keep the post clear of personal virulence, low sarcasm, and verbal contentions with printers and editors. I think the Post has done a fabulous job of upholding that <laughs> oh, principle. Oh, no. I mean, within a month, within a month, he's arguing in print with other editors at another newspaper. And Coleman is a firebrand. In 1803, he's in a duel, and he actually kills New York Harbormaster, who had said something disparaging to Coleman. So he Man. kills, He so he shoots him and kills him in a duel, goes back, and they put out the newspaper and he apologizes because it's 30 minutes late. Did he include the piece about the murder? I Probably not in that edition at least. But so. speaking of duels, I mean, what happened to Hamilton? Well, because if he created the paper, launched it, what, in 1801? Yeah, well, here's the thing. It's, it's sad because he didn't really get to use it as the as the mouthpiece that he wanted to because, you know, he ends up dying in on July 22nd, 1804. So he's not really al- alive that much to really use it. Coleman himself, though, does keep the paper running until 1829, but then he has a stroke and he, oh. he can't continue. But luckily, at that time, there was another editor running the paper who then retained ownership of it and his name is William Cullen Bryant a famous man he actually controlled the paper for what the next 50 years he gave it its first real success and turned it into a powerful piece of journalism and he was something of a renegade too i mean he was an abolitionist he was he was a poet <laughs> among other things he's often been compared to benjamin franklin and how he was able to shape political opinion using journalism in this newspaper. Which I guess was Hamilton's intention in starting the paper. Most significantly, is it was not any of these actual policies, but in the 1840s, um, Mr. Bryant had just declared that what New York needed was a gigantic public park that was similar to these English parks. Mm. So he ran a competition in his newspaper, receiving over 60 entries of how to, to design this grand park. So the winning, winning entry... Tom, if, if you remember from last week's episode, the winning entry was Olmsted and Vose. Well, and he was ahead of his time in a lot of these things, including, Tom, did you realize that he was actually one of the founders of the Republican Party? Of the, of of, the original. Of the original Republican Party. That's correct. You know, he was actually an old school Democrat. When the, you know, it's, I don't want to get into the specifics and the nuances of, of like partisanship right now. But the party Save that was... Save the emails, <laughs> folks. He was a key in the formation of the original Republican Party when he, in 1856. The paper then developed this Republican slanted voice. Being an abolitionist, he, and like Henry Ward Beecher, mm-hmm. uh, who down in, you know on his pulpit was proclaiming the evils of slavery and a lot of these sort of outrageous things to us today um he took this drastic sides of abolition he he ran editorials for instance you know proclaiming john brown as like a martyr mm. now i know i keep returning every podcast now it's almost a cliche now of returning to abraham lincoln at cooper union but i have to return to him now because bryant was such a huge lincoln proponent and lincoln himself had such an admiration towards bryant that he introduced lincoln at that 
very infamous speech that Lincoln made that basically helped get him elected. And then Lincoln Lincoln then turns to Bryant on stage and said, it was worth a journey to the East merely to see such a man. So, you know, he was the publisher of the newspaper and he was at this time he was doing things like translating the Iliad and the Odyssey and everything. I mean, he was an absolutely fantastic, literate man. Probably the most famous of the post 19th century editors. And he stuck around, as we said, for 50 years. So till about what, 1881, when the the title was handed over to Henry Villard. Yes, yeah, so Bryant died in 1878, and then so then at 1881, here comes Henry, here comes Henry and the Villard family. Now Henry was a German-born immigrant to the U.S. He he was a political progressive. He was a trained journalist. Had worked at a couple different newspapers in the U.S. But made a fortune in the railroad. He went ahead and took control in 1881 and also bought into the nation. Did you know this? Oh, the, oh, the nation? Like, the that's nation, the, that's, that's, today's magazine. Yeah, yeah. But then write uh-huh. the newspaper. He, he would do a number of things during his amazing time here in New York, also helping to finance Edison's uh, early yeah, projects. Yeah, that's, cr- that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, he, helped, he was all over the place. <laughs> he helped him establish the uh, Edison General Electric Company in 1889. Do you know that he was mar- also married to the daughter of William Lloyd Garrison, who basically is like the abolitionist figure of the 19th century. And Henry stayed as the progressive editor and force behind the New York Evening Post up until 1897, mm-hmm. because in 1897, he handed control to his son, Oswald Garrison Villard, and he, who was also a political radical, thankfully. And very, very virulently anti-war in a period when we were in a war, with the Spanish-American War. And would remain, right, he would remain that way throughout his lifetime, in fact, controversially, later on to the detriment, perhaps, of the Evening Post. But Oswald, first of all, I mean, he became the owner, actually, in 1900 Mm -hmm. of the Evening Post and of the nation when his father died, and then was one of the founding members of the NAACP. Oh, right. He even put, like, free advertisements. He gave just free space in the paper advertising this in 1910. That's really (laughs) extraordinary. And also the ACLU. He was one of the founding members and was also writing editorials and pushing for women's suffrage. I mean, he's almost like a like a proto civil rights leader in a strange way. Well, I mean, he what, was, yeah. you know, whatever his motivations were. I mean, he was he he put his name and he participated and gave so much publicity and attention to these groups that are, of course, really important to us today. And also was fighting for pacifist causes and against America's involvement in World War One. But that's where he got into a little bit of trouble. Was his anti-war stance during World War One? Isn't that correct? Well, following the war, right? There were allegations that he was actually pro-German during the war. He, he was a German. His father ha- had lived in Germany, so they, so the post suffered a fallout from advertisers. So this was this was a difficult period. It actually forced. Uh, Oswald to sell the paper, though he held on, not surprisingly, to the nation, which Mm -hmm. remained his unwavering mouthpiece all the the way up through um, the rest of his life. The Post at this time, then, it's, it's entering a slump phase. And, you know, it's almost symbolic that he would would sell it at this time anyway, because 
it's sort of a rapid succession of owners at this particular time. Should so, we cue the montage music? Yeah, montage. Yes. Now this is the part in the movie, you know, where they have the 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 headlines falling. You know, yeah, the, the, the swirling issues. headlines on the yeah. side. And my head will be in the Give middle. Give them to me. Well, so he sold the paper in 1918 to a, a J.P. Morgan investor named Thomas Lamont, mm-hmm. who was also fairly liberal for the time and he was uh, a leader in the women's rights movement he was not able to see profit for this and so he sold it at a loss of reportedly two million dollars in 1924 to a group of of reform leaders actually like a a group of businessmen it was headed by cyrus hk curtis who was a publisher of the ladies home journal and i think you may see where this is going the and also the saturday evening post the new york post at this evening post at this time becomes very stodgy and unsensational essentially boring and by the way I should but ma- had it been sensational before because i thought it was progressive I well it was if- progressive but uh, it was interesting maybe not sensational but during this time it is decidedly not sensational so it's a big snooze <laughs> yes by the way i should mention that one of the um reform leaders that yes. happened to buy into this paper at this period of time one franklin delano roosevelt Believe it or not. So anyway, the the paper was slipping even further into popularity. just wasn't working. So then in 1934 to 1939, they were sold to a new owner by the name of J. David Stern, who also owned a Philadelphia paper called the Philadelphia Record. He was the one that drops the evening. So now we can just call it the New York Post from here on out. He was so anti-German, anti-Nazi, because this is like the years leading up to World War II, anti-Nazi, that he barred advertisements from companies and department stores that sold German products. And so who who topped that list? But New York's biggest apartment store, Macy's. And so he barred ads from them for for a time. But well, with this sort of philosophy, paper's still not going to be successful. And what happened, it was the it was actually a money pit. It was taking money away from his Philadelphia paper, which was making money. So he sold it in 1939. But then it switches hands for perhaps the most important time in the 20th century. Well, that's debatable, but the first really important time, landing in the hands of Dorothy Schiff, who is just an incredible character. She really is, I mean, she is, in every sense of the word, fabulous. In every (laughs) sense. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) She purchased it in 1939, and... She would run the paper for the next 40 years, continuing perhaps restoring the paper's liberal theme and progressive-minded slants and politics. Well, bringing back both its popularity and then bringing back its liberal philosophies, if you will. The New York Times, by the way, called her, like this is a description of her, they called her both flirt and boss, frosty heiress and labor champion. Dorothy was from a very rich banking family. She was upper class New York debutante. Old, an old school FDR style Democrat. She was really into these welfare organizations like the Henry Street Settlement. Her second husband, by the name of George Backer, thanks to the social circle that he was in, she was included in a lot of the Algonquin Round Table. Mm-hmm. So she she's been- plugged in. So anyway, so she owns a paper. Uh, She makes her husband, who was a city councilman, like we just said, George Backer was his name. She makes him the publisher and editor. Now it didn't make it didn't do so well for the first year. It lost two million dollars, and basically in the early days, it's reported that she threw about one third of her total net worth into the paper just to keep it afloat. This is becoming a familiar story, isn't it? It seems like the post has has become something of a money pit for people who want to get their voice 
voices heard. But in this, yes, but true. But political leanings out there. But in this case, uh, it, it manages to work despite the fact that she has these sort of, let's just say, domestic disputes throughout the whole thing. I guess that's to be expected when you name your husband publisher and editor. In 1942, her husband resigns, and then she actually steps in and becomes, for what it's time, the very first female newspaper editor for any newspaper in New York, which I find amazing. And then she divorces him behind the scenes. In 1943, her new husband, Mm -hmm. brand new husband, whose name is Ted Thackeray, she makes him a co-editor and co-publisher with her. So I got to diagram this. So Dorothy's (laughs) third husband becomes her second editor. Yes, exactly. Sort of second editor, thrice removed. By the way, Thackeray is is credited with actually coming up with the idea of turning the paper into a tabloid size from the regular broadsheet. Well, I have to object here because actually the first tabloid move had happened under Cyrus Curtis in 1924. But it got switched back. Well, right. But he had tried it out as tabloid size first in the 20s, but then it was brought back under Stern in, in the 30s to a broadsheet, and then Thackeray makes it a tabloid again. So it's been all over the place. Now, Thackeray doesn't really, doesn't stay around that much longer anyway. I find this (laughs) amazing. This is like a Tracy Hepburn kind of a situation here. So they have this open paper rivalry mm-hmm. for of who to support for president in the 1948 election. And I guess they're at the Democratic pi- primaries themselves. And Thackeray wanted a man named Henry Wallace. Schiff wanted a man named Thomas Dewey. They duel openly in the paper. But then I guess there was some undercurrent here that was actually in their own personal life because he ends up leaving the paper and then they divorce. And then what's funny is then neither of their candidates even win the presidency because then, you know, Harry Truman comes in and wins. That's an (laughs) irony with newsprint all over it. (laughs) That is like airing out your dirty laundry in the most public forum possible. She had, you know, other fabulous ambitions happening at the same time. She set up the Paris Post, in fact, in 1945, which lasted... Well, it lasted only until 1948, but it was only the second English newspaper being published in Paris. Oh, and, you know, because she had run out of husband editors, <laughs> uh, she had to start naming some other people editors. So let's see, who was who was next on the hit parade? Editors like James Welshler and then Paul Sand. Uh, you know, during the shift years, I think the paper was, as you already said, devoted to liberalism and to unions and to Democratic candidates who didn't necessarily win. It was the only New York paper to support Adlai Stevenson during, you know, his Democratic run for president in both 1952 and 1956 against Eisenhower. She's not really backing winners, is she? <laughs> but, you know, we have to, I have to mention, though, by the 50s, the paper is making money. It's in the black, finally, you know. She even writes her own column in the oh, 50s what was it? called Dear Readers. I think it was one of these, like, from the desk of the publisher type of things. I'm sure it was I'm sure it was oh, amazing. Dig up some of those. You know, she had so many amazing columnists that she hired, like Elsa Maxwell and Eleanor Roosevelt. Max Lerner. Even Pete Hamill. Though she wasn't a traditional feminist, she didn't end up hiring more women in her office than any other newspaper. She also brought in a little sunshine into the paper, if you will. She bought the comic strips. She bought more feature-friendly 
stories into the paper. Significantly, though, she was also she was not a big fan of Joseph McCarthy. And get this, she was the first vocal critic. She and the Post and her editors. I don't mean to say just her first vocal critic of Robert Moses. Oh, there he is, <laughs> Greg. I forgot about I mean, him because you know it, he was sort of con- considered a bit of a, a savior for the city, and, and he you know he was doing a lot of good things. But then there were these undercurrents of like destroying slums and everything, and so she really called him out on that, and one of the one of the first voices to really do so. And that makes sense because, as we learned in the Washington Square podcast, one of the most vocal critics of Moses was Eleanor Roosevelt, who was also then a would, columnist. Would, would for right Chef. here, yeah, I'm sure they were good friends and had a lot to talk about over cocktails. It's kind of amazing to think what the post would be like today if she had never sold out well, as she did in 1976. Yeah, when she was 73 years old, and to the ent- total surprise of her newsroom, did you know this? That she didn't tell anybody. They basically found out that their newspaper had been sold when they read it in the rival paper the next day. The but, Daily News? The Daily News, and I think it was in the New York Times, too. It was actually two rival newspapers. Yeah, so she, the paper was beginning to slightly lose money by the mid-70s. So that's when she decided to sell it. And she ended up dying in 1989. So she didn't really get to see the real direction that her newspaper goes when she sells it to... Rupert Murdoch. Now, she sold it for $31 million. Now, even under Murdoch, for a number of years, she stayed on as an advisor to Murdoch, a paid advisor. Oh. Now, I don't think she really did that much advising because under Murdoch, the political leanings of the newspaper swung straight to the right and the tone came over to the right. It became much more conservative. There was a change of tone also as he applied his sensational screamer style headlines, his sensational brand of journalism that he had been developing he sort of inherits this sensational style from his early days in Australia. His father owned some tabloids, but t- had to sell them off. Rupert inherits the, the passion to own papers and to sort of get his own sort of political slants through these papers that he owns. Um, he makes a name for himself, actually, in England and popularizes these sort of scandal sheets. So his first day in the office... And the first January 3rd, 1977, he introduces two things to the post that are actually quite significant and are still there and are they make the identity of the New York Post. The, Namely the first one being that red stripe that runs along the top. Ah, that's yes. that's his or his people, his you know, the people that he brought in. That's their uh, little clever little branding trick that they did. And it would stand out, of course, because as opposed to today's newspapers, which are in full color, full color. certainly on the front page, mm-hmm. at the time, the, the Post and the other papers were in black and white. So yeah. a big, bold strip strip of red across the top. But it's still there it's and it's still, it's still identi- identifiable. Mm-hmm. Also on that same day came the very first page six which you know derived from that london style gossip the first gossip some of the some of the gossip items on that very first page six there was um, a little item of um woody allen canoodling with a young girlfriend at elaine's Uh there was uh some gossip about dorothy hamill carrying on with dean martin's son so those those are just wow, a sampler. Wow, heavy hitting news day. The headlines get bigger, the stories get shorter, um, the pieces the, get juicier. You know, uh, there's no topless women, but there are lots and lots of sexy clothed women mixed in with the regular news up in the front few pages, and it works. Like for instance, in March 1977, in one month, 
It featured over 20 stories about Farrah Fawcett majors. <laughs> you know, I think the post still features stories about <laughs> well, at, least, at least at least one or two right <laughs> so the post the post is a smash but media regulation laws if we jump ahead to the late 80s and i apologize because it'd be much more fun to talk about farrah Fawcett stories <laughs> but laws being what they were in 88 media regulation laws forced murdoch to sell off some of his properties because he had you know, he was owning TV channels and newspapers around the country, and he had to let some of the properties go. So he sold off the New York Post, mm-hmm. and it didn't really work out so well. He sold it to real estate developer Peter Calico, who declared bankruptcy in 1993. It didn't, he get, but Murdoch owns the paper now. What happened? Well, so. because it went kind of back and forth. I mean, th- after Calico went to Stephen Hoffenberg, who was, I think, convicted, and then Abe Hirschfeld, <laughs> who owned parking lots, I yeah, mean, right, right. parking garages. Uh-huh. It was sort of a mess there for a little bit. Finally, public officials persuaded the FCC to actually issue a waiver for Murdoch so that he could bypass this law and actually own the post along with all of his other properties. And they relented and he took up leadership again. And so that's why Murdoch owns the post today. <laughs> that's why he still has it. And he, and he, and he that's so why, that's dra- how he got it back. Well, we should end this on a, a lighter note and just sort of give you some of our not, maybe not favorite headlines, maybe not funniest headlines. Just goes to show you like the style that formed in the late seventies and now with with the Murdoch Post. You know, in this in the seventies during the New York blackout, mm-hmm. for instance, when they were able to print out a paper like the next day, they actually got criticized by, of course, by everyone in the press and the city when they came out with a paper that said twenty four hours of terror," and then followed by a city ravaged. It's so dramatic. It's so believable today. <laughs> well, yeah, that's almost like calm Back. today. And then shortly thereafter, with the son of Sam killer, same summer, same summer, they put out a headline that said, "No one is safe from son of Sam." <laughs> okay, sensationalist, but you want to read the story? Yeah, well, it's true. I'd, I'd want to pick it up, and then I'd lock myself in my house. <laughs> you know, everybody has their own favorite headline, and in fact. If you go to the Post website today, you can vote for your favorite headline. They only offer a they're couple on, of them. They're in on the joke. They're, they're totally yes. in. They're putting out a book right now. Mm-hmm. It came yes, out I actually saw, yes. on March 25th, 2008. I saw it. I, of, I'm by it. It looks right. great. All the best uh, Post headlines. One of my favorite is about Brooke Astor's son, who was you know trying to run off with the uh-huh. family fortune. Bad Air Day. <laughs> It's great. That was from February 8th of this year. Of course, they included a photo of his hair blowing in the wind. Mm -hmm. He looks like a disaster. Greg, I mean, the most famous headline... Headless body in topless bar, or, or topless body in a headless bar? Headless, <laughs> no, headless body in topless okay. bar. From April 15th, tax day, 1983. Probably the most famous headline in tabloid history. It was about a, a woman who was actually forced to buy a gunman to decapitate the owner of a Ew, tavern. gross. So, I mean, it's, the headline isn't wrong. <laughs> no, it's, just... it's technically correct. It's just tasteless. Well, on, on that note... <laughs> It's time for us to close our New York Post. Um, as always, uh, please check out our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, with some pertinent stories to this podcast and all just all sorts of other things and pictures. And we are on Facebook. If you are, if you are on Facebook, we are also on Facebook. We'll meet you on Facebook. <laughs> so just type in Bowery Boys and 
click on become a fan and we have a, a great community on there already and come join us there we have some extra little features there that, and we will add more as we progress but it's been a great pleasure flipping through the pages of the new york post tonight with you yes and uh we will of course in future podcasts tackle new york's other fantastic papers anyway glad to have you with us have a great new york week whether you live here or not see you next week Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.